1: You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. It's not exactly tropical outside, but the good news is it's a warm start to the morning on a Thursday. Good morning to you, Jake Query, along with Kevin Bowen, Mark Dykton, manning the controls for us. It's Kevin and Query, which it took months of consulting to come up with that name. here on 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Joining us now on the Payless Liquors Hotline He is a favorite guest of the program. He is the dean of college basketball writers who pretty much saw when the kid was like 15 years old, he wrote a column about LeBron James and said, "Uh, this guy's pretty good. And that's just one of the areas where Mike DeCourcy can lean on showing his expertise when it comes to the game of basketball. Mike, appreciate the time. I'm going to begin with this for you right out of the box, and that is obviously Purdue is fantastic. Um, By the way, Sporting News and Big Ten Network for Mike DiCorsi. Purdue is fantastic. Houston, I love the way they defend. Alabama's very athletic, but if you were to look at, let's say, the upper echelon of teams in college basketball this year, is there a clear-cut top three to five and then separation, or is there pretty good parity throughout the top, let's say, 10, 15 teams? Well,
2: I I think that on the best days, the teams that you mentioned uh, are extraordinary. But I mean, we've seen Alabama have you know one, maybe one of the worst days that any top team, any team that has been ranked that high, and uh, not that I'm big on the rankings, but or high on the mock brackets. Uh, it, it, Alabama's game at Oklahoma was almost historic. I mean, I've never seen a team that. That has that level of accomplishment in a season, go out and get beaten that badly by a mediocre to bad team. Maybe it's hard to say bad, but they're all in a very difficult league. Uh, they're getting buried, and uh, so to go out to Oklahoma and be put down by thirty and, and scramble back to lose by twenty-three or twenty-four. So I, 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 it's a hard it's a hard thing to trust. Most of the better teams. I mean, Houston lost to a Temple team at home. A Temple team that's nowhere near the NCAA tournament. I mean, they won't even let them buy tickets. That's how far <laughs> Temple is from this. Um, and so I, it's, it's hard to trust the best teams with the exception of Purdue. Mike hasn't lost to anybody that can't play.
3: Apologies, Mark, Mike. Sorry, to interrupt there. Uh, Mike DeCorsi is with us. Sporting News again, Big Ten Network. Kind of on that note, and I know obviously you you do some bracketology stuff. Right now, how big of a gap would you say Purdue has from falling to a two seed? I mean, it seems like they are the clear-cut number one overall seed when you consider all their wins, particularly away from home, uh, and just outright road wins too.
2: I think to to fall off the number one seed line, they would probably have to lose three games, three times. And I'm not talking about three times between now and and uh, selection Sunday. I'm saying three times in the regular, three more times in the regular season, and that would maybe put them in jeopardy of falling to the two line. But remember while they're losing three, and that's a theoretical thing, people. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to happen. But while they're losing three, probably the, the teams that are on the two line trying to climb, well, they're already probably going to lose three anyway. So it's really hard for me to envision Purdue falling off that one line. It would take an absolute collapse, and they're not going to collapse. It's a terrific team uh, with a terrific coach. That's not to say they're not going to get beat here or there down the rest of the way. But they are not collapsing. They're too good.
1: Mike, when I was a kid, the narrative was always, to win in the NCAA tournament, you got to have good guards. Indiana's going to win because they have good guards. You know, that was always the narrative. And and maybe I was just being brainwashed by, like, the, the Indiana culture. But I think there was a lot of truth to that. But basketball now has become, obviously, more positionless than it was, say, 30 years ago. Is there still... A specific blueprint that seems to work better than others when it comes to March, or is it a matter of simply our athletes have gelled better over the years than yours? You know, I'll be honest with you. I never bought the idea that you have to have quote, good guards.
2: My, I always said you had to have good everything. Yeah, I mean, you, you just, it just—it was. You know, Jimmy Black won an NCAA championship. I wrote a whole column about this last year. Jimmy Black won, it, won an NCAA championship as a point guard. Now, he averaged like six and a half points a game. Uh, now, his teammates were Michael Jordan and James Worthy, so it helps to have a couple Hall of Famers on your team. But they, they, you know, those guys, James Worthy wasn't a guard. He was a power forward. So I, I always thought that that was overplay. That was a big Denny Crumb thing. That's what he always used to say. Um, and, meanwhile, Purvis Ellison won him a national
1: yeah, championship. Yeah, I mean, you've got you got Patrick Ewing that could probably have Mike DeCoursey and Jake Quarry in the backcourt, right?
2: Yeah, it, 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 they never really had great guard play with Patrick, and maybe that's why they didn't win more than one. But they had they had very good players at every position, and you still have to to an extent. I mean, look at last year. Kansas ends up winning the national championship largely because David McCormick who was not a great college basketball player? Uh, it was a very you know very up and down career. Uh, Kansas fans were constantly on him. but he's a six eleven center, and at the end of the national championship game in which, again, uh, Otayabaji was terrific at times and uh, and uh, Christian Brown was good at times. But at the end of the day, it was uh, David McCormick, who was not a great college player, who made the biggest plays and won them the championship. So I think you have to have terrific players. Here's what you have to have. First of all, you have to be really good on both offense and defense. So you go to Ken Palm and you look, and if your team isn't in the ballpark of top 20 in both of those categories, you're probably losing some time. Um, if If you look at, you have to have a really good point guard. Now he can beat Jimmy Black, who just distributes the ball, or he can be... Um, Jalen Brunson, who dominates. You have to have good wing play because you have to be able to defend. And you have to be able to keep the ball out of the lane, which is usually the function of really good defensive wings. And you have to have somebody that can get the ball into the lane and and make plays. And that's, that's maybe the most important thing, is that you have to have somebody who can do something that the opposition can't take away. That they can scheme and defend and and figure out all this stuff that you do well, but then eventually somebody who, like a Jalen Brunson or uh, or I'm trying to think of a good example, um, uh, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, who can just take the ball and go and make something happen that a defense doesn't doesn't have the ability to stop.
3: And Mike DeCoursey's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. You find Mike's work. Or in sporting news, Big Ten Network as well. I was saying to Jake a little bit earlier, Mike, and you know when you just said that you know Purdue can you know have several losses and still be on that one line, and when you look at the geographic regions, there's probably a good chance Purdue gets slotted into that kind of Columbus, Louisville, first and second round, Sweet 16, Elite Eight, so they have a little room to play with. So I feel like it wouldn't be the worst thing here in the month of February, Mike, for at some point. Zach Eady just gets an awful whistle one night, and he gets two fouls in the first half, and he's got four somewhat early in the second half because inevitably, if you're going to make a run all the way to Houston to the final four, you're probably going to have a night where Zach Eady plays 26, 28 minutes. Uh, Do you think that would be something that would be well-served for Purdue to experience this month? Because he really hasn't been in foul trouble all year.
2: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point. Uh, so, So you're saying so that everybody else gets a run without him out there. Is that the idea? So they get used to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. just to kind of get to right. understand, so they're not looking around. You know what I mean? Like, what happened? Yeah,
2: yeah. I think it's. I I, I think there there could be some value to that, sure. Uh, because the reason that they, the, you know, the main reason they lost to St. Peter's last year was they did look. They didn't play well. Jaden didn't play well. Um, but the number one reason they lost uh, was that St. Peter's was allowed to basically do whatever to Zach, and, and as a result, he wasn't able to be at all effective. I mean, he was poor in that game because he wasn't able to do anything. Uh, he, it, it, one of the reasons he's having the year he's having, and, and I know some IU fans don't want, got mad at me for saying this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, but one of the reasons he's having the season he's having is he's being officiated fairly. He's, just because he's seven foot more doesn't mean you can do anything. And in that game against St. Peter's, that was the whole thing. If you go back and watch how he was defended against Texas, and where they fouled out like five guys, because Texas figured we got five big guys, so why not use them all? And and but because they because they fouled those guys out and put those guys in foul trouble, Purdue won. And then they go against St. Peter's, and those guys, their, their defenders were able to pretty much handle Zach however they wanted, and it completely changed. Purdue's ability to be effective so I do think that coming into this tournament it would be helpful for them to understand what happens if that happens but I don't think that the Big Ten is oriented toward that I think they've been pretty well instructed on how to officiate him for all the criticism that Big Ten officials get um, they have handled him really properly all the way through the conference season so I don't think that's going to change
1: Mike DeCorsi is our guest. He's on the Paley Sugars hotline. You can see him, of course, on Big Ten Network. You can read him on Sporting News. Mike, when you look at this year, give me a team. Give me a team not in the top five. So I'm not talking Purdue, Houston. You know, hell, even Arkansas when they're healthy is really good, but they've obviously fallen off a cliff. But give me a team that it's entirely possible in the second week of the NCAA tournament we're going to see them there, and you're going to go, you know what, that makes sense because they were consistently really good all season long, yet nobody talked about them.
2: Well, I I think that if healthy, TCU could be that team. They are really dynamic. They can run. Uh, They've got got that great guard play, uh, but they have to be healthy. Uh, Damian Baugh's been playing uh, a lot, uh, but he's been playing without Mike Miles, who's their best player and their best guard. Uh, he he uh, twisted his knee down at Mississippi State, and they've lost, I think, three times since then. Uh, Eddie, Eddie Lampkin, their big guy, who's uh, one of those big body, big guys who can really move for a player his size, uh, and is really effective around the goal because of his size, and is really skilled away from it. He hasn't played lately, so I think when healthy, they'll you know they they are trending toward a four or a five now because they haven't been able to. be successful without those guys Uh, so that's a that's a team that because of the injuries and that sort of thing that they could they could really be up there Creighton's another Uh, Creighton in part because of their schedule just hasn't provided them a lot of great opportunities Uh, since since they played in Maui and uh, they played some some good Big East teams I mean they got Xavier at home for instance and beat them pretty handily Uh, That's a team with a lot of offensive ability and one of the best two-way centers, probably the best two-way center in college basketball, Ryan Kalkbrenner, who is masterful at running pick and roll on offense, is really nimble on defense with his size and length. Uh, That's a team that could be really dangerous, and I don't know where they're going to wind up seed-wise. Eventually, they'll start to play the better teams in their league. Uh, they'll, they'll more of the better teams in their league. Uh, they, I think they still have games against Creighton, and, uh, excuse me, against Marquette and Providence, and we'll start to see them climb the seed lines a little bit. It's
3: Mike DeCorsi. He's with us. You can see his written work over on Sporting News and then on uh, Big Ten Network as well. He's with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Mike, you know, we sit here on February 9th and probably the conversation we're having about Indiana is pretty similar to what we would have had on November 9th of this is a team capable of making a second weekend type of run, yet it's been such a roller coaster. Some injuries have played into that, but it's been such an up and down year. Um, How would you kind of describe your feelings about Indiana with a month to go in the regular season?
2: I think almost all of their problems have been injury induced. You go back to Trace being banged up early in the year and not being the player that you see now who is who is who would be 1A if he had played this whole year like this. He would be 1A behind Zach. Instead, he's probably a solid 2 or 3 now. But think about where he came from. When I did my midseason All-America team, and that was maybe three weeks ago, he wasn't on it. Fifteen guys, and he wasn't there. And I certainly knew... You know, it's not like I'm not aware of who Trace is, but he hadn't, he hadn't performed quite well enough to do that. He'd had a couple of good games. Uh, he, he was starting to get healthy again. Uh, and then the team was out of the picture at that point as well. So I, he wasn't on the 15-man team. Now, I, I, if I were voting today for first-team All-American, he'd be, like I said, second or third name I'd write down. Uh, that's, how, that's how much of a difference health has meant for him. And then you look at the the absence of Jalen Hood Shafino when they went to Rutgers and some of the er- other early losses, uh, the, pre- the current absence of Xavier Johnson and how Jalen once back had to basically completely adju- readjust his game. Uh, they, you know, they remember they spent all of the preseason, exp- you know, basically training Jalen to play off the ball. Now he had the ball in his hands at times. It was a, it was an either you or me kind of situation, but it was mostly Xavier who ran the point. Uh, and so he had to completely adjust to being ball dominant for 36 minutes a game or so. And that completely changed his role. So all that stuff combined. And then not, not to mention the, uh, the uh, injury to race Thompson halfway through the Iowa game, all of that has ganged up on them probably more than just about any team out there. So for them to be playing like this now, I think this is how they would have been the entire year if they hadn't been injured the the, uh, the whole way, and they would be looking at—I mean, they would be contending with Purdue for the Big Ten title. Still think Purdue's better, and would probably win it, but they'd be contending instead of just trying to get into the you know one of those uh, top four seed lines uh, on the uh, Big Ten bracket, so they don't have to play three games—or excuse me, so they only have to play three games. I, I I think that this is who they are to an extent, although they still now when Xavier gets healthy they're going to have to reintroduce him to the lineup. And that's not always an easy process, not for Xavier in particular, but for any elite player, uh, any, any starting player who's usually a 30 plus minute a game person, uh, you have to decide what you're going to do. Do you put him back out there in the starting lineup and play him 30 some? Do you gradually put him in there, uh, which obviously impacts him? Uh, There's a lot of difficult decisions to be made once he's healthy.
1: You know, Mike, the NIL has changed things so much. Is there a chance? I'm not saying right now that it even would be in the forefront of his mind. But when it comes down to it with NIL money and et cetera, is there a chance Trace Jackson Davis plays a fifth year at Indiana?
3: There's a
2: chance, certainly. In in, in the limited conversations I've had with him. I never got the sense that that was in the plan. I think that he's getting to the point now where he's showing the NBA. I can play in your league and I can play well in your league. And it's, I I think we're, we're less at the point of, I don't know whether he'll get drafted in the first round or whatever. I certainly would once I got to a certain point, take him. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about that this morning, Cam Johnson from, uh, from Phoenix just got traded for Kevin Durant. He's one of m- multiple players in the package. But when he was drafted, they—I think he was tenth overall. The mock draft people like harangued Phoenix for taking a player who was a senior at that high in the draft. And Phoenix said, "Yeah, but he makes every three-point shot he takes, and he's—he's ha- he's got like in, in in five or six years, he's got like 550 career threes, and he just got traded for Kevin Durant." So I don't think the fact that Trace is a senior is a problem. That he doesn't shoot the ball well from deep, eh, that's a problem. And it's, and it's going to keep him from being a star in the league. But if you're one of the good teams and you can get a guy who can guard like he does, who can pass like he does, who can handle the basketball in space, who can guard in space, I, I, don't, see, I don't understand how a good team would pass him just to you know, take somebody who's, a, who's played one year and maybe might sort of kind of be a, a prospect.
3: Again, Mike DeCourcy, Sporting News, Big Ten Network, at TSN Mike on Twitter. Mike, appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully uh, we can have you on, certainly before the tourney starts.
2: Oh, you guys, man, you know I'm, I'm there for you when you need me. Thanks, Kev. Thanks, Jake.
0: Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at K-I-S-Q-A-L-I dot com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between.
1: Halfway through the 8 o'clock hour, meaning halfway through the program for us. Our workday half over, Mark. Your thoughts? Love it. Can't complain. Gonna celebrate National Pizza Day, I think. Is that what today
0: is?
3: I feel like we have that like six times a year. I'm not complaining. I'm 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 not complaining at all. Do you think today Scott Agnes just has like a slow IV of coffee in his veins? I'm his morning wake-up
1: call usually.
3: Well, today, I mean, Kevin Durant news broke what, 1 a.m.? Yeah. You can't nap on a day like today.
1: By the way, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to anyway. I didn't know it's National Pizza Day, but when I was in between gigs and I did a... Uh, thing partnered with wheeler mission 30 lunches in 30 days where i just met with different people who were going through homelessness and profiled it to try to raise awareness about homelessness in indianapolis um with no solicitation from me whatsoever hot box pizza called and said you know what we want to provide pizzas every single day to the homeless for 30 straight days for you so if you are considering today where to get your mm. pizza there are several great options in indianapolis but consider the generosity and upfront of Hot Box Pizza.
3: Yes, that is great, tremendous work by them. Um, I do love Donatos as well. If I can throw that. Yeah, in the it. only
1: problem with that is the more you eat, it, it, like I just I keep eating it. Well, it's Not a bad thing. You know, what I mean it's, it is good. Um, joining us now on the Payless Lookers Hotline, and I'm sure thrilled to be doing so on this day where essentially he can't really kick up the feet for another six and a half hours because trade deadline is here. The big news if you are just joining us. Kevin Durant is on his way to Phoenix mostly because the Suns had to take on Durant's contract in order to get T.J. Warren back. <laughs> um, Nets in exchange getting um, I always forget how you pronounce his first name, but Bridges, Cam Johnson, Jay Crowder, four first-round picks. Mikhail Bridges. Uh, Mikhail. I always say Mikael, but um, Also, the Lakers sending Russell Westbrook out. He ends up in Utah. D'Angelo Russell is headed to the Lakers. Part of that trade, Mike Conley will be going to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Other pieces involved with that as well. But let's get to Scott Agnes. Scott, uh, do you believe that Indiana will be actively involved with anything that will make a headline at ESPN when the trade goes through? Yeah, uh,
4: probably unlikely yeah um i I'm obviously they're always active but i i just don't think there's there's much right now that they would do and especially by the way a uh, headline on ESPN that's going to be hard to top when you have the names to the likes of Kyrie to dallas russ being moved on in a three-team deal and a blockbuster of kevin durant so yeah i'm not sure anything they could do could really top that right <laughs>
3: Scott's latest kind of a trade deadline primer up on Fieldhouse Files. A lot of good nuggets in there. Um, any team you're watching in particular today, Scott? Obviously a lot of activity we've already seen in the last 24 hours, but um, I, I have a feeling you might go north of the border, but any team outside of Toronto that you're watching today?
4: Yeah, that was obviously the first team I thought about there, and we saw a minor move for them. Yesterday, but uh, outside of that, Chicago, what are we doing there? Um, that That's an obvious one, I think, is that team's kind of broken and needs to make changes, whether it's now or or later on in the summer. Um, I think Boston could probably do a minor move, potentially. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on within the Eastern Conference of relevancy to a team that's really going to be making a, a championship push. And then I think it's fairly possible for Jay Crowder, who's involved in that deal from Phoenix to Brooklyn, to then get rerouted, and and, and Milwaukee has been the the primary choice and discussion point for him, and he hasn't played since all of last season. So those are, of of deals of relevancy, that's probably what you're looking at. You could you could talk about Charlotte needing to blow it up, but. I'm not sure that's of any interest to anyone.
3: Scott, I know this is a tad hypothetical, but I think back to last year's trade deadline and how that Miles Turner foot injury in January or whenever exactly it was, that is an event we might look back on as one that totally impacted, reshaped the future of the Pacers. You know, I think there's a lot of. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's
4: interesting because I think it was like January thirteenth. Then he never played again this season, and that was you know several weeks before, right? Right as right approaching that trade deadline, and so um, that was actually the first time I had heard about DeAndre Ayton to the Pacers. Keep an eye on this. You know, here we go. Uh, may not be at the trade deadline, but it's certainly this summer. And well, that sure held up to be true. But before all uh, all that, this summer with DeAndre Eaton, who by the way, the Phoenix Suns will be here on Friday. Although I think we might see a skeleton crew before, uh, you know, the entire team is, is joined together and, and makes its debut. Uh, and, and Kevin Durant's been out, by the way, anyway with injury. Uh, but, th- yeah, the stress reaction in the foot means you just need to get off of it, need to get rest. But I will tell you, a two-year extension also tells you uh, a, a positive side of everything is that clearly the Pacers medical staff was good with that was good with kind of like a turf toe injury that that he had the year before that took him out for the last three months or so. Uh, so I think those are all good indications, but, um, with miles, yeah, he was the one more people thought would get moved last year at this trade deadline. No one was talking about Sabonis. And I think just when, when Halliburton became available, you had to sweeten the pot even more and, and they weren't going to make him available, uh, if not for Sabonis.
3: Yeah, it's just crazy when you think of the what-ifs, and you know you you are not getting Halliburton back if you trade Turner. Um, I, I don't mm-hmm. think Sacramento would have done that, particularly this time last year. Um, on the Turner front, um, how much do you think his extension, the fact that that is signed, uh, impacted or altered the Pacers' thinking here leading into today's deadline?
5: Yeah, I, I it
4: definitely impacted their approach to the deadline because if not, if there was nothing to this point, and there was no like, and they hadn't gotten close on an agreement, right? Because they could have signed something up until March first. So you, the Pacers, if I'm them in the front office, you would have just had to feel very comfortable that you were getting closer, and that Miles was open to signing an extension. I think. I don't think you would have had necessarily get a signature on the dotted line by today. Uh, But if he had not and you hadn't felt comfortable, yeah, you would have moved him. You would have absolutely had to because this franchise, and most, cannot afford to lose someone of his caliber who's, by the way, playing his best basketball, four double-doubles in a row, consistent production here lately as the primary five. Uh, You can't lose him for nothing. So you would have seen that, and you probably, as part of that, seen a couple other pieces potentially go out with him. So that's made this much more of maybe a relaxed deadline, you could say, because they've had that locked up here for, you know, a couple of weeks now. And there's just no obvious route to go. I think more than anything, the Pacers are going wait and see. Let's see how this plays out. Let's give this group more time to, to play together, to grow together. Um, the only thing I would question is a lot of the players, it could be like I think we talked about last week, that we want to see play together and grow together aren't getting that playing time. Yeah.
1: Scott, when you look at, I don't know, you know, we, we use the term copycat league. Scott Agnes, our guest on the Paleo Sugars Hotline. And I don't know if it's a copycat league per se, but we use that a lot. But certainly there was the trend of the superstar buildups, right? Durant, Harden, Kyrie all together in Brooklyn they played 16 total games together Durant now on his way to Phoenix you got Chris Paul there DeAndre Ayton you know obviously Devin Booker but are we starting to see because these things are getting blown up faster and faster is there any chance that we're starting to see the decline of that and the league is going to shift back to indeed the piece by piece organic building
4: For one, yeah, absolutely. It is definitely a copycat league, and I think that's probably true for all leagues. You see it in the NFL just as as much. Uh, I think what we're seeing, Jake, here in the last few years is is less three-team powers and more. You really do need at least two guys to really compete. I mean, uh, you take a look at this new Phoenix team, the one-two punch of Durant and Booker. Dallas trying, I disagree, but Dallas thinking big here and trying to do a Luka and Kyrie kind of big too. I think what is out, and mostly this is from monetary and you just can't do it reasons um, financially and, and make it reasonable, is where it's more than two guys. I mean, the, that Warriors and that salary cap and just the timing of everyone's contract worked out beautifully for them. To have Durant and the rest of the, the other three for that one time, but that's what's changing. You're seeing, you're seeing teams go to more spread, more more fast tempo styles, and you're also seeing teams. I think realize we also need to surround these superstars with some talent, not just have three, the big three, right? Like like in Miami.
3: And Scott Agnes with us from Fieldhouse Files. He's got a trade deadline primer up. Right now, 3 o'clock today, that is when the trade deadline hits. Looking back at last night, I know you kind of referenced this just a minute or two ago, the lack of playing time with Benedict Matherin. To me, Scott, I think what was particularly frustrating about last night, and this is something we saw against the Lakers last week, of you got a guy that played really, really well um, You know, late January, what, five straight games over 20 points, and I think it's an opportunity last night to pair him with Halliburton a uh, grouping that you want to see a lot of moving forward. The chance to go up against Jimmy Butler, who, you know, I think was getting a little chirpy at times and kind of doing Jimmy Butler type things. But also, Scott, I, I'm confused by like in the short term, I think Matherin should be out there too. Like if you're trying to win, he's a guy that has shown you time and time again this season a bad quarter does not carry into the next quarter, a bad half does not carry into the next half. That's what to me was so surprising about him only playing thirteen minutes a season low last night.
4: Yeah, and four minutes in the second half, none in the fourth quarter. And the fourth is usually when we see him play oftentimes that entire quarter. Right, so, get to the foul line. Um, this did not align to what we're accustomed to seeing and what, what, we, what, what he has done. I mean, he, he's mostly been playing lately 30 minutes per game. So down 13, easily a season low, only got two shots off, didn't make one. Um, and I went back because I was like, "All right, am I missing something? Did I was I watching too much of your trade deadline and you know missed him just kind of lollygagging up the floor or chilling in the corner? I didn't think that was the case. I didn't see any obvious reason. Now he wasn't perfect. He, he turned the ball over, missed a defensive assignment, gave up a corner three. But more than anything, the thing that jumped out to me actually was how he was not utilized offensively. How and this I really put on the point guards out there to. He kind of gets things started. We talk about Tyrese and how good he is of kind of reading reading his teammates and seeing, hey, a guy, guy's a little bored out here. We need to utilize him. Um, the fact that his only, only <laughs> real good shot attempt, he got to the basket, missed it but was fouled, I, I, th- I thought his n- number needed to be called a little bit more. And then, yeah, in terms of both winning and the bigger picture, you need Matherin out there. He's going to be a fighter that's actually going to not back down to Jimmy Butler type and really relish in this opportunity. So even if he does have a bad game, and that's how Carlisle framed it post game and say it was just a coach's decision, which led to me to watch back that tape. I, still, you want him out there to, to grow from these moments at minimum. So that way you are learning and growing through a loss. But I didn't get it.
3: Jake had an interesting point earlier. You look at Chris Duarte, 20 minutes last night, Daniel Tice, 18. Do you read anything into that of this is the game before the trade deadline, let's play these guys to try and expose them a little bit to other teams that might have interest, and maybe post-trade deadline, that 20 minutes, some of that goes to Matherin, and the 18 for Tice, some of that goes to Isaiah Jackson. Is that wishful thinking? Is that reading too much into it?
4: I don't. I just don't think that's the case. But I think we'll know right away. I guess the next game, probably. Um, you, I always say you, you don't want to read too much into the cu- last couple of games leading up to the trade deadline because you don't exactly know the front office goals and maybe what they're trying to see or maybe honestly, there's a team that's like, hey, we just haven't seen enough from him um, from any player out there. Now, from a general standpoint, I don't see Tice getting moved. At this day, trade deadline, I don't think that has been a motivating factor at all of him returning a week ago and trying to, you know, really ramp things up. This has kind of been part of his individual plan. He returned exactly twelve weeks from surgery, and they slowly ramped him up. Um, on top of that, he's a nine million dollar guy. A guy like him is normally acquired. In the buyout market, um, that's not going to happen um, this year with his particular case. Uh, Duarte is a more interesting name. He's someone that uh, other teams have definitely looked into. They see the log jam at guard for the Pacers. They see how he's kind of not misfit, but he hadn't he hadn't felt comfortable um, all season. So they have looked into him. Um, I, I think Duarte I think Dorte was just. Starting, starting, they just need to see him break through a little bit. And so he had seen a
1: couple shots go down and they were, so they were rolling with him. I just think that Daniel Tice, and you tell me, Scott, if you've, if I have read this wrong, but I think Tice carries with him a little bit of like the, the persona of what they feel they need one of. And I'm not saying they need a lot of it but i think they just think that he's kind of that that junkyard dog that can just kind of exude a little bit of muscle for them and that's a that's a roster that doesn't have a lot of that because it has a lot of lean and athleticism underneath but not a lot of bulk and so that's why they like him because he brings that and they just don't have any depth of that one need agree or disagree
4: I agree, specifically at that spot. Um, you thought Goga might be a little bit of that, where he could come in and be change it up and provide kind of more of a physical center. You know, provide a different look there when Miles was out of the game. I think I think the, the words that come to mind when you think Daniel Tice to me is know how. He's just a guy that's been there, done that, done it at a high level. I think it's year seven for him. He's reading pick-and-rolls. He's pr- trying to get guys in the right spots defensively. And By the way, he's played for this team for a week. So if right. he's doing that and feeling comfortable to do that, that, that is huge, I think, too, for the coaching staff because it's, it's like Halliburton. It's another coach out on the floor trying to you know move guys into the right pieces here.
1: Now, I wonder what's going to happen with Phoenix with this roster. they got all these new guys, right? You know who that might free up, Kevin? Bismack, Biombo, Basement mm-hmm. Ben, yeah, okay. right?
3: Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm I mean, shocked.
1: I, you, Boy, if he would have been thrown into that trade, can you imagine the haul they could have gotten back? You know what would be fun is if there was a G League team in Bismarck and he went there. Can you imagine that? Bismack and Bismarck, that'd be awesome. Scott, that'd-
3: I know it's your favorite game to play. We'll end with this. I will put the number at .5 over under Pacers players traded by 3 o'clock.
4: Oh, oh. I'll say right now I'll go under. I agree. I'll go under for right now. I will admit, admit, though, if this was three months ago, I probably would have said over one and a half um, is where we're at. And this is where you kind of see the fluidity of a team and the, uh, the circumstances. And to your point earlier, miles Miles signing that extension kind of changed everything there and then... Um right now, I think it would only be a move on the fringes if something does get done here by 3 p.m.
1: I mean, do you agree with this, Scott? I'll be Scott? the contrarian. I'll take over. Okay, I, here's my thought, Scott. You tell me if you agree or disagree with this. Kevin Pritchard today only picks up his phone if it's to take a call. He is not picking it up to make any.
4: Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's that's reasonable. It's one of those where... It's a it's a little bit optics, but you know you're you're listening to everything, but you're not actively pursuing anything. You're not going out and hunting for a deal, and there, there's nothing from this roster where I think you're trying to connect. I guess where I would change that is if another deal maybe gets um, finalized here. If there's a way for them to work themselves into a deal, yeah. much like they did with Paris LeVert for Victor, that's where it could be advantageous for this franchise. They got $10 million in cap space. They got some draft assets. Um, so There's several different ways they could shape it. That'd be that'd be one of the ways where it would make sense for an outbound Indy call here.
3: Scott Agnes, Fieldhouse Files. It's a busy, busy day in the NBA world. Busy night last night in the NBA world. Scott, thanks for the time, man. All right, guys. Thank you.
1: Zach Kiefer joins us now on the Payless Sickers Hotline. Zach, of course, with the Athletic, and so what the hell? We'll bring him into this conversation. Zach, with the preface of the fact that you know they're very they're very tight lipped, so I want to make clear to protect you, this is not you reporting anything. But if you had to say the person whose name, like it, just kind of seems to keep going back to in your mind. That you just get a feeling they might be really honing in on for the Colts would be who?
5: Gosh, this is hard. I knew you were going to put me on the spot. I was talking to someone familiar with the search a couple days ago, and they kind of made it very clear nobody knows anything. Like, this is kind of crazy. I did the numbers, and we're four and a half weeks into this search. They've had 21 interviews, 13 via Zoom, eight via in-person that's 132 hours roughly of interview that's pretty crazy um and I still I still honestly Jake do not know where this is going to go it makes sense to a degree and and let me throw this down at you guys it makes sense if it's Steichen and they're just waiting right if it's Shane Steichen the Eagles offensive coordinator he will be coaching on Sunday and you know, I think, I think this is an, a very real thing in the minds of Jim Ursay and Chris Ballard. Last time they had hired a coach before the Super Bowl, you know, they had, a, they had come to agreement. And, you know, a couple of days went by and McDaniels got cold feet and backed out. A very embarrassing day for the team. And I think part of that is the fact that they didn't vet McDaniels enough to realize this was possible. So to avoid that embarrassment, if you're doing it this time and if you are hiring a guy that's coaching Sunday, it makes sense to just not leak anything out of it until after the game, when really there's no way he can he can back out of it.
3: Yeah, Zach, I want to focus there for, for a second. Again, Zach Kiefer from the Athletic with us here on the Payless Stickers Hotline. I've been saying to Jake several times this week. I think a massive reason why you're seeing the Colts so quiet and so thorough is because of the embarrassment Chris Ballard felt in 2018, and it, I, I think that is a huge reason why you've seen the Colts have this sort of process. And right here, right now, why it's so hard to get any sort of concrete information out of them because unlike in Carolina where they made an announcement and then had a presser four days later, unlike in Denver where they made an announcement and had a presser several days later, I don't see the Colts doing that, Uh, and I guess I kind of understand it. I mean, if I would have gone through that and I were Ballard, I'd probably want to be as thorough and as quiet as possible.
5: Yeah, I think it's twofold, KB, and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this as well. Um, You know, I I, I don't believe there's going to be any announcement until after the Super Bowl. That's just my gut feeling as as it inches into, really, Super Bowl weekend right now. Um, I think it's twofold, KB. I think you mentioned 2018 and the embarrassment that came with that. That was all Ballard. McDaniels was Ballard's pick. He begged Ursa to come out to McDaniels' house to finish the job. They had dinner that night. He met the family that night. They had a handshake agreement with Josh McDaniels, which was a week before the Super Bowl. Remember, that was before the Patriots even flew out to Minnesota for that Super Bowl. We know what happened after that and the embarrassment that came with it. But the other layer in this, and and this is just me thinking out loud, is they were embarrassed, I think, in a way, at how this last half of the season went. I think the, the scrutiny and the dysfunction label that followed this team, following what happened in early November, you hired just Saturday late on a Sunday night. You fired Frank Reich over the phone that morning. You bring in Saturday the next night, and you think, and I think in Drew Mercer's mind, uh, he thought the fan base was going to be revved up. They were going to be fired up. They were going to be pumped. You know, you're tapping into the glory days, and you're bringing back a, fanch- a franchise favorite. The embarrassment that came after that, the losses in Minnesota and Dallas, et cetera, and the way they were criticized across the league for how ridiculous this was, I think the Colts right now are trying to prove a point. Look, we can have a thorough co- coaching search. We can do it everything by the book. We can have the most exhaustive, thorough, complete process in the world. Uh, I almost feel like they're going overboard. They're It's almost paralysis by analysis at this point because you're almost five weeks in and like you're thinking about third-round interviews. Like, What are you going to learn in a third-round interview that you didn't learn in a 12-hour second-round interview? So Look, if you're trying to prove a point that they can run a normal coaching search, congratulations, you guys have done it. But at this point, you need to get a coach in here before the combine starts, for God's sake.
1: I was wondering about that of how long, I, I mean, theoretically, whoever it is, the that person is already looking at the roster, you know, if they have an idea. But doesn't it feel like, Zach, that, that whoever it is, is going to need time to kind of figure out going into the combine what they're looking for. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like, I I mean, how long do you need to get ready for the combine? You can't just turn around and walk into it, can you?
5: Yeah, a coach can. Um, It's it's not as complicated as it might seem. Look, they're already familiar with the roster because that was a heavy discussion during these interviews. You don't come in there and not have some thoughts on the roster. And one of the questions Chris Ballard has asked these guys in every single interview is, is what do you think of our team? Right. And these guys are going to go through position by position. They're going to go through the scheme, the talent, the contracts. And I think one of the beneficial things for this team moving forward is something they needed. They needed some honesty. They needed some cold blooded honesty about where they're at and why they're there because their approach. And I've talked to JMV about this, their approach and all that, like Ballard's approach has has not worked like the facts are the facts. They haven't won a division in seven or eight years. And, etc so i think jake those coaches that came into those interviews have a pretty good feel for why this team is where it's at and what's working and what's not um look they had some people down in mobile last week at the senior bowl the scouting staff the personnel staff the niece ballard they can handle all the draft prep work there's still three months to go they're going to have plenty of time the other caveat i would add is a lot of people have asked me Like, are they still going to be able to hire a really good coaching staff? And that's a very real concern. Yeah, I Right, A lot of good coaches have been scooped up. Now, if you go back to the last time, I thought Frank Reich put together a really, really good coaching staff in 2018. Late in the game, he was hired a week after the Super Bowl. Remember, I mean, Tom Manning was a really good tight ends coach. He hired Nick Sirianni to run his offense. You guys know what Nick's doing in Philly. Jonathan Gannon, that was a great hire, defensive backs. He's going to be a head coach pretty soon. Obviously, he had a little help with Iberfos already being here, but Bubba Ventron's been really good. So I wouldn't be overly concerned with that. Um, But the one thing I will add is is some teams are calling about Gus Bradley, the defensive coordinator, to interview him for the same job. The Colts are basically like, nah, we're not going to let him leave. My understanding is three or four of the head coaching candidates have looked Ballard in the eyes and said, I want to bring Gus Bradley back, and I want to bring his entire staff back. Now, it depends on the hire, and I think you let the head coach hire whoever he wants, but I would say at this point there's a good chance that Gus Bradley and his defensive staff are back, and that's a little bit of continuity for a franchise that desperately needs some.
3: Again, if you look at the candidates that have Gus Bradley connections, Shane Steichen certainly does, Rich Passaccia, Raheem Morris, a couple of others that have direct connections with Gus Bradley. Zach Kiefer with us right now. Obviously, you read his work over on The Athletic. Zach, this is something that I honestly is probably more curiosity than anything, but you've seen so many of these, you know, long interviews and whatever the numbers that have been thrown around, ten, hell, there's been some reports of 12-hour days. And Jake and I were kind of going back and forth on like what exactly they're talking about for that long. And when you kind of map it out, I mean, there are about, I think, 8 pretty legit, Topics that you could be talking about for that long. So basically, I guess I'm just asking for, you know, if it, you have any insight into what these interviews look like. Because when you do think about it, or say not necessarily involved in the first round, more involved in the second round, you're going to talk quarterback plan, you're going to talk free agency, you're going to talk draft, like you say, you're going to talk roster, you're going to talk just general background, um, you're probably going to talk your coaching staff, locker room, uh, schedule, all those sorts of things. So just any insight you might have into what these interviews look like?
5: Yeah, I think, I think you hit on a lot of it. Like, I mean, your you guys show is what three hours every day. I mean, it's probably not that hard to fill it. There's a lot to cover. If you're an NFL head coach and one thing that's been made clear to me by executives and coaches who have been through this process is like how much different the job is from OC and DC to head coach. And I mean, not the football stuff, right? Like coaching, is, is the easy part, because these guys have been doing that forever. It's it's the other stuff. It's like the CEO-type stuff. Like That's the other stuff that gets in the way, in a lot of ways, of just doing the job. And I think some coaches are really, really good at that, at compartmentalizing and some struggle. So obviously they're going through the roster, and that probably takes a couple hours, right? I would imagine that. What I want to know, and, and I don't have the specifics, but I think this is the most fascinating part, and I've talked about, about this in the past is, how do you sort of understand a guy's leadership ability when you're interviewing him in a room? Like I want to see him on the field. I want to see him in a locker room. I want to see him in the hardest moments because if you coach in this league, there's going to be things that don't go your way, whether it's an injury or whether it's a a player not, you know, following the script or whatever. Like you're going to know the most about a guy when you put him in the worst of situations. God knows Frank Reich had those difficult situations here with the quarterback turnover and, and Chuck Pagano. Like, it's going to happen. And, and that's what I want to know about. And, and also, I think Jim Irsay is sitting down with these guys for several hours. Like, how much does the other guy get to say? Because we know Jim yeah. can be wordy. Good luck. But w- what are those like? Like, and Jim is often, often said, and I don't know if his fans like this, but he's the guy making this call. And, and, and how does he make that call? It's intuitive, he said. It's a feel. It's a gut feeling. It's based on fifty-two two years in the league, like that. That that's hard to predict. Like that's hard to predict. That's hard to quantify. Um, but and I would love to be a fly on the wall for for those four hours because I bet you hear a little bit of everything. I bet you hear some some rock and roll history, some gale series, gale saves. Like all, I bet you hear the whole
1: gamut when you sit down with Jim mercy for four hours. You know that guitar over there, it's like David Crosby, man Millsy. All right, Zach, you've played you've been to Vegas, right, Zach? Yeah. You've played roulette, right? Where you got the table, it's got the 36 numbers. You take your chip, you can put it like straddle numbers, etc. Everybody knows this game, yep. right? Okay. Right. So I'm gonna give you eight chips. Before you on the roulette board are the following spaces. Raheem Morris, Aaron Glenn, Brian Callahan, Jeff Saturday, Basashia, Shane Steichen, and then one that just says other. You get to put the chips on the different names. If it's touching a name, then bingo, you're a winner. Do you put a chip on Jeff Saturday, or do you double up your chips on another name? I do not. I do not, and... And I feel pretty strongly
5: about this. From everything I've heard for the last couple weeks, I I just don't think he's going to get this job. I know he wanted this job very badly. I don't think he's going to get this job. Obviously, you guys know that things can change and things change fast with this organization, but I just don't think he gets the job. Um, I'm thinking, Jake, I'm thinking Dykens has got a good chance. I've heard some really good things about Brian Callahan. I know Raheem Morris interviewed well. I heard Bisaccia and Aaron Glenn interviewed well, and I know that sounds redundant, right? Of course, everybody wants to leak out that they interviewed well, but this is crazy. Like, we're five weeks into this, and and nobody really knows what they're going to do. And I think, frankly, I think the Colts like this. I think they like people guessing.
3: Do you think they've made a decision?
5: I think so. I I think maybe if if they haven't told anyone, I still think, you know, in their mind, they have to know who it is at this point, right? With all the information they've gathered. Um, but from my understanding, the coaches that interviewed are still waiting, like guys that are not in the playoffs, like obviously Steichen's busy, but the rest of them, from my understanding early this week, they were just kind of like, okay, I'll just wait for a call. So that's the interesting part is like, usually that's how start, things start to leak out. Like a couple coaches that were candidates for the Cardinals found out this week that they're no longer candidates. So that helps you win the field. That's not happening here. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Colts don't make any of those types of moves to prevent a leak until Monday or Tuesday.
1: That leads to this question, Zach. A lot of people have asked me, or a lot of people have commented to me, and I get it. You know, people are like, oh, poor media guys. You just, you know, you feel like they owe it to you to let you know what's going on. I don't think that at all. I I don't. However, the longer this plays out and the longer this pans out, and the longer you theoretically, if it is the case, have coaches that are kind of waiting for that call, does that actually hurt Indianapolis in the future where the next time they're in this situation again, coaches are going to say to themselves, I'm not throwing my hat in their ring. Look what they did to my buddy.
5: I would push back on that, Jake. I don't think so. I think things are so, things change so fast in this league. I mean, this guy could be here three years, he could be here 10 years. No, I get and, that. And, In three years, you won't even remember the last coaching search. The only people that will are degenerates like you and me and (laughs) and KB, who have to live this. Um, I know way too many things about the last coaching search just because I've covered it for so long. But, again, and and I talked to some agents about this, like, in the Colts' belief is that if they were going after a Sean Payton or a big name, they would have had to move fast, and they understand that. If they're going after the guys that they're going after, most of which are not head coaches before, They don't feel the need to rush. They just don't feel the need to rush. And I think they communicated that to these coaches. Um, But again, Jake, there's there's 32 of these. And a lot of these guys, a lot of these guys would kill for this opportunity, however it comes. And and I'm writing a story about this tomorrow. If they get the right guy, none of this matters. Like, we're not going to remember these five weeks. It's not going to matter at all. How you get there does not matter in this league as long as you get the right guy. If you get the wrong guy, you got to go back and look at the process and figure out what you did poorly. And I think this is a result, like you guys mentioned at the first question, this is a result of what went wrong in 2018 in a lot of ways. So that search was pretty quick. They had a, they had an end in mind from the very beginning. They wanted to get an offensive guy. They ignored a really good candidate in Mike Vrabel. Not ignore, but he was never going to get the job. And they went with McDaniels. It blew up in their face. And I think this is sort of the result of that, uh, a very long-winded way of saying, This is the byproduct of all that went wrong in 2018.
3: Zach, we'll end with this. And again, Zach Kiefer uh, from The Athletic. Um, A non-coaching question to cap things. Um, I kind of forgot about this, but it is the NFL Honor Show tonight at 9 o'clock. Part of the NFL Honor Show is the announcement of the 2023 Hall of Fame class. I probably lean towards no, unfortunately, because I think both are pretty deserving. But do you think Reggie Wayne and or Dwight Freeney get the call to the Hall tonight?
5: I don't, you know, I need to get my buddy Mike Chappell on here to answer because he's our inside source. With the you know NFL he's a steel soda. trap right now. Right, poor guy. He's a, He is a steel trap, but he's the guy that's pitching in the, in the room, and, and you can always get a feel in that room, he says, about whether these guys are receptive. Um, I, I, I just don't, I, it's just tough to see these guys sneaking in. I didn't like the class last year. I thought that was Reggie's turn, um, but I feel like I feel like there's a little Colts fatigue. To be honest, and I know Colts fans hate to hear that, but you had Peyton and Marvin and Edgerin and Paulian and Dungy all go in consecutively in a lot of ways. And I feel like the voters in their minds, whether they admit admit it or not, are a little tired of putting Colts players in. So I think it'll probably go elsewhere, but I think Freeman will have a chance down the line. I'm, I'm not
1: sure about Reggie. I feel like his best chance was last year. Interesting. I don't disagree. That's interesting.
3: Yeah, the whole out position is just odd. Like Tory Holt, yeah, Andre like, Johnson,
5: Reggie Wayne. I, yeah, well, Andre Reed going in before Marvin no, was, was just absurdity in my mind. Like just looking at the agree Marvin was it wasn't close, but it doesn't always reflect that.
3: Couldn't agree more. Zach, uh, good luck. Keep pumping the coffee, and we'll be looking for that update. And by the way, nice story on Quiddy Pay. If you guys missed that, Quiddy Pay was a guest at the uh, State of the Union the other night. Really nice story by Zach on that.
5: Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.